there's just nothing else in medicine that we're taught to recommend that has so little evidence. You know, we have to, as pediatricians, learn to push back on things that are not evidence-based. Well, folks, the original recordings of this podcast ended at the two-year mark in May of 2023. I find myself surrounded by special people who have asked that we put the podcast on simmer instead of taking it away completely. I've also gotten feedback that our regular followers didn't know about certain episodes. There are so many and so many good ones. So as I'm the cast iron skillet and Abby is the Instapot, we have a new sous chef, Kate, who's added her own seasoning. Kate said, we've done our meal prep. And our summer episodes are in the freezer ready for consumption at any time. So we're going to roll out our favorites every other week instead of every week. And you're going to see Kate's picks and Jana's picks and Royce's picks and Hannah's picks and many others. Thanks to this new crew who are persistent in making sure that this podcast does not completely go away. I'm grateful to each of you and what you have contributed. All right. Welcome to this third episode of our second medical series. Last year, we had our first medical series that went really well, and we've continued to raise the bar and invite some amazing guests for this second series. Today is no exception. We're talking with Dr. Rebecca Peebles from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, a.k.a. CHOP. She's telling us how she got into her work with eating disorders And today's title is Even If We Agree to Disagree. That was a direct quote from Dr. Peebles. And she started in weight management field. And so many of us in healthcare started that way in a weight-centric environment. But it's not just agreeing to disagree about that. It's It's about what modality to use, how to use family assistance, or how to include other providers. And one of her biggest takeaways is to have our own humility. We don't know everything, but some things that we do know, and this is not the first time you've heard that if you've been following the pod at all, weight suppression has a profound effect on the brain and behavior. And listen in to see how she defines healthy state. And I do want to tell you that we bring in medical nutrition and therapy professionals who share their passion, and that's to pique your interest in what's available in the field of eating disorders. But a quick disclaimer, this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional training and supervision. It's for information and educational purposes, and additional training and supervision is required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is this a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. All right. We are thrilled to have Dr. Rebecca Peebles with us today for our second medical series on the Seasoned RD. Welcome, Dr. Peebles. Hi. Thank you for having me. 
Hello. So we're going to get things kicked off kind of easy here with some icebreaker questions, but I did just want to say I'm really looking forward to hearing all of the brilliant talk between you and Dr. Voss. This medical series is so fun and that Dr. Voss asked questions that I would never think to ask. So, oh my gosh, I feel a little pressured now. <laughs> no, you're great. <laughs> okay. So Dr. Peebles, mountains or beach? Mountains. Why? I am not a huge fan of hot weather, but I also, I would almost say both because my favorite areas to go are, my family is Swedish. And so where we go every year, there are beaches and mountains right there in close proximity. So I sort of don't have to choose. That's awesome. Best of both. Yes. All right. Breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. Mm, That was a quick answer. (laughs) It's always been breakfast. Do you have a go-to breakfast that you like? Uh, No, I'm a big fan of breakfast. I'll take any different types of breakfasts, you know, so not, not, uh, you know, eggs, omelets, French toast, cereal, oatmeal, whatever. I think breakfast is a good thing. I'll take leftover dinner for breakfast. if that's Oh, sure. That too. (laughs) No, I do breakfast for dinner. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. And then audiobook or paper book? audiobook so I can listen to it in the car on the way to work. Yes, that is the same. And there's, so, you know, it's so many people are used to either having paper and a paper calendar and paper everything, but I like the listening on my commute. You yeah. and me think alike. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to bring you back because this podcast is really for people newer to the field or just interested in eating disorders. And highly experienced because I learned something in every every episode. I, but I want to bring you back to a board exam. And do you have any stories or something funny or scary or worrisome that you had to go through way back when, if you can remember, about a board exam? About a board exam? Gosh, No, they are all scary. So I feel like I've suppressed (laughs) all of the memories. You know, now I take uh, refresher board exams largely in a in a really dull computer room full of people taking the same exam on the same computers. So there isn't too much to be terrified of, and there aren't any horror stories. You just, you know, I think probably when I was breastfeeding and had to do some of those, it was pretty difficult to like sit through those exams and not be able to pump and not be able to do anything. So they they have, at that time, at least, they certainly had not accommodated the needs of mothers. So I wouldn't say that was like a board nightmare, but it was definitely a board challenge. Michaela, wasn't that your, Dr. Vaz? Yeah, I yeah. totally I'm, had the same experience. Mine was kind of a nightmare. I was, I was <laughs> pumping in the stall of the bathroom and and while people were waiting, because there were only two bathrooms and I was taking one to pump on my break and I had no accommodation. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was, it wasn't sanitary. Like it yeah. was, and I was stressed because I had to get it done within my 10 minutes or whatever. Yeah. Um, so this just shows, you know, things have gotten better for people and you have been, both of you have been in the field for a while. And so they do have accommodations now. I, yeah. I have learned that. So I'm very glad that we've moved forward. Forward a little, yes. A little. (laughs) Well, Dr. Peoples, we would like to know how you got into the field of eating disorders, maybe even medicine as an interest. 
Sure. I'll, I'll try to make it a concise story, but it might not be totally as short as it should be. I was raised by a, a dad who was a, a pediatrician and a mom who was a child psychologist. So I, I grew up always hearing about things that would traverse sort of the biological and the behavioral. And, and my dad was very behaviorally interested as well, at, even as a, as a pediatrician. And so I was always interested in, in both. I initially, when I went to med school, I initially tracked into a triple board program where I would be trained in psychiatry, child psych, and pediatrics. And I realized very early in my intern year of that where I was doing pediatrics but had like a continuity clinic in child psychiatry that I was not patient enough to be the kind of psychiatrist that I wanted to be because people would come and and tell me what was going on. And after like three or four sessions, I'd be like, all right, let's come up with a plan to fix your life. Here's list one through six. And I want one to three to be done by next Wednesday or whatever, you know. And so I certainly could have continued, but it, but seeing the kind of gifted therapist that my mom was all those years and how much patience she had for that process, I felt like that wasn't the right fit for me. And I was also introduced for the first time to adolescent medicine that year which provided a great marriage of the biological and the behavioral for me, at least with not just eating disorders, but medical noncompliance, factitious disorders, substance use, children undergoing trauma, other things, and and became very interested in all of the above. Over time, my interest honed into eating disorders, and I ended up choosing a fellowship where I could get even more training in both med psych and eating disorders. But I think that's sort of how I landed there. I mean, in addition to watching people my whole life grow up. It was always the most talented kids in my high school that you would hear vomiting in the bathroom and, you know, or after track meets or whatever and, you know, and restricting themselves down. So I think that it always, it was always something that was very concerning to me, very interesting to me in both, you know, high school and college that, you know, how is it that, that these disorders go on and, and, in, in people who have so much to offer the world and, and they get, they feel so stuck on this. Yeah. And, thank and, you. and still offer so much to the world. I don't want to diminish that, but, but that the eating disorder can occupy their brain in this way. Right. Yeah. And did you have like so many of our guests at a short time in weight management? I, I did. It wasn't short. Actually, I worked for 10 years at Stanford in the quote unquote healthy weight clinic there um, alongside my time in in eating disorders there. So I spent equal time in, in both fields. And I uh, really, that was very educational for me. I did have a different approach than all the other people in the healthy weight clinic, I will say that, and that I, I was really working from a more, uh, from a health at every size and weight inclusive paradigm very early on, pretty much from day one. And, but they were very accepting of that there and willing to learn from it. So we had some really good discussions about it. It was a bariatric surgery clinic for kids as well. So that's also controversial, but I, I, I will say that I, the kids that were approved were, were really like, I mean, their lives were changed for the better for the bariatric surgery. And it was, they were, they were not like, the, the complications that they were having were such that, you know, needing a heart transplant, but not being able to get it, which is a different discussion. And I think should be offered to people of all sizes. However, being able to have things like that due to the bariatric surgery was, was a good thing for those kids. But, but again, not many kids got approved each year. They were very, very thoughtful about it. And I do think that 
to work in a place like that was a good, good launching pad. But I, I'm not pro surgery for everyone in any way, shape, or form. So I think that's an individual decision that people have to make with truly informed consent, which I tried to bring to the process. And you bring up a really, really good point earlier on. You were talking about how everyone is is focused on weight and being at the appropriate size, whatever that might be. So I just think about our general pediatricians out there who are learning in med school that you look at your BMI, if it's greater than 85%, you're supposed to do this education on nutrition and lifestyle changes. And we know that that's not necessarily true for all patients. So what, what would you say to those general pediatricians out there that get this one-sided education on how they can improve their practice since you have that? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I learned is that there's nothing more powerful than, than a doctor telling a child who is larger bodied that they are fine in the body that they're at. And, and, and that, and it particularly within a quote unquote healthy weight clinic, that that was a really powerful thing for them to hear. And these were kids who were used to going to pediatricians and hearing messages like you're describing, Dr. Voss, and and then not going back, you know, because it's too traumatizing and, and they don't want to keep hearing it. And their parents didn't want to keep hearing it either. So being very avoidant of care and instead being able to develop a close relationship with someone who is really focused on them being them just working on their, you know, whatever behaviors were surrounding their eating and their lifestyle. And many of them had excellent behaviors. Like there wasn't anything to modify, but, but some of them had some modifications that could be done and and helping them along with that, but not focusing on the number of this on the scale was very empowering for them. So what I would say to pediatricians to circle back to your question is that I think we need to be taught that more. I think we need to be reminded that Despite trillions of dollars being poured into the weight loss industry for children and adults, and despite the Kardashians and Oprah and everyone being on this, like, you know, so if, you know, despite all of that, we have yet to have any trial show success at significant weight loss long term without, without bariatric surgery, really. And, and even with that, that shows also significant weight regain in in a certain percentage. So I think we, we, there's just nothing else in medicine that we're taught to recommend that has so little evidence. So I, I think, you know, we have to, as pediatricians, learn to push back on things that are not evidence based. And despite what we're told that it's not evidence based, the fear here is that fat is always bad and that you can't be healthy in a larger body. And again, we actually don't have a lot of great evidence for that either. But even, even if we, like, even if we agree to disagree on that and we say, okay, fine, like you find the literature out there compelling that someone in the larger body is, is at dire risk of a billion things until we have a safe solution to that, you know, that, that works most of the time, or even a majority of the time, I don't think it's responsible to keep talking about this because I think it's very, it really sets people up for failure and it just makes them feel uh, like they can't, I mean, they're, they are told that they aren't working hard enough and if they could work hard enough, then they would lose. So it's, it's quite damaging. It also leads to weight cycling, which is really harmful from a lot of metabolic perspectives. And I think we as pediatricians need to be taught all of that. When I do teach pediatricians about this, they are often relieved to hear all this. They don't like doing the counseling they're asked to do. It feels icky to them as well. 
So I think I think it's something that our field really needs to revisit in a big way. But there's a lot of there's a lot of power behind the people who make these recommendations and and it's hard to it's hard to adjust the tide. And and really there's just a lot of weight bias in it. I mean, I think there's a, that's really the only explanation. How why else would we recommend something that's so ineffective? It's really because the the alternative of seeing someone stay larger is is un, unpalatable and unacceptable to the medical community. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't do it. And that's really shameful and not what I feel like we are drawn to medicine for, right? We're and you had talked about all of the money and the research around obesity and being overweight. And you and I both know how underfunded eating disorder research is. And so a lot of the problems I feel like is because it's not evidence-based because we can't get the money to create the evidence. And so it's almost like that weight bias plays in even in the research to get where we need to be, to be well-informed. So that's frustrating all around, but I know that you are doing some research and would you like to share with us a little bit about what you are learning about? Sure. Sure. Well, so I just finished a a study looking at cardiometabolic and bone and body composition changes in, in new on new uh, adolescents with new onset anorexia nervosa. So can I pause you for a sec? So cardiometabolic is a word that we don't hear very often. Can you tell me what that means? Sure. Looking at, you know, lipid changes. So like cholesterol, triglycerides, looking at glucose related changes, hemoglobin A1Cs, insulin levels, looking at inflammatory profiles, and and then as i said also body composition changes so visceral fat dis- distribution and and subcutaneous fat distribution which is often protective and things like that and and things basically this was born out of that i mean there there is an evidence base in anorexia nervosa for treatment and the strongest evidence based approach right now is for family based treatment which really focuses on weight restoration in the first in the first portion of treatment and it focuses on weight restoration in a way that's a little more rapid than people were used to traditionally when I was first trained. You know, so we used to have people gain like half a pound a week or things like that, which which basically meant they never got to their goal weight, honestly, because it was not sustainable. But I think that now we aim for two to five pounds a week and trying to get the weight restoration phase done in 12 weeks or less. And that's not actually prescribed by the FBT research. I'll, I'll be acknowledged that that's more just how it's been incorporated because it, it parents fatigue from that first phase of treatment if we do it too slowly. And and it's it's very helpful psychologically. We see clear results of, you know, of course when people are not are in the weight restoring, they're not thrilled about it, but that but that they're even during the weight restoration process and for the next nine months after we see depression scores and EDQ scores go down quite clearly. But what isn't known is what happens physiologically. And a lot of doctors will come back at me saying, oh, but it just can't be healthy to make people gain weight that quickly. Like, and there isn't evidence that it's unhealthy, but they'll say that. And they're parents very, too. the parents too, they're very worried about that. And so this was born out of trying to reassure because honestly, clinically, it doesn't make intuitive sense to me that it wouldn't be healthy when they lose weight that quickly. Why would it be problematic to bring them back to homeostasis for themselves you know, at an equally reasonable time frame, but I understand the fear. And so this was sort of born out of that. Now we haven't finished doing the analyses, so I don't have a final word on that, but that's what this was born from. 
So you're, you're looking at what changes in the body are occurring during this during, during weight gain phase. Yeah. During, one. during kids who gain weight more rapidly versus kids who gain, it was an observational study. So the people were not randomized, but people who naturalistically gained weight more rapidly in the first three months of care versus kids who didn't. And by kids, I mean, kids, teens, young adults, it was 10 to 24 years of age and then following them for two years after. Okay. Cause so, so it was over a two year period, following them for a year and nine months after, excuse me. Oh, I cannot wait to hear the results of that. That will be so informative to our care because when I treat kids that have what is the deemed atypical anorexia nervosa and they have a dramatic weight loss, I have a hard time figuring out if they need West weight restoration. And if so, how much And when I use my markers that I typically use on physical exam and symptoms, sometimes those resolve much earlier than I would have anticipated. And so I have a hard time knowing exactly where to put their body, get their body at a healthy place. So having markers like that would be really helpful, I think. Yeah. Now this was done on anorexia nervosa. We have, we have, you know, in our program, we certainly have QI or quality improvement data on our patients with with atypical anorexia nervosa that do indicate that they also need to get to goal weight. And we have seen, it's interesting that you find that clinically there, you know, the studies we've done have shown that kids with atypical AN do take longer to get their periods back. For instance, Mm -hmm. it hasn't been examined in males, how long it takes for them to get their testosterone levels up. We're working on some of that as well. But I, I think that you know, but, but I think what we try, at least programmatically, we try to think of a goal weight as a place where your body and your brain are healthy, you know, and so that we're not just, it's, you know, we're looking for a healthy state. And, and that means that someone's, you know, heart rates are normal, their labs have normalized, their pubertal track is back progressing on track, you know, so if they're pre-monarchal, then their linear growth is doing okay. If they're post-monarchal, then things are working that way. Same for guys on the, you know, reverse side, you know, but we're also looking about how rigid are their cognitions, you know, so, and I would say that typically with all types of restrictive eating disorders, I feel is the is the last thing to get better for most patients, you know? So, so I no longer tell people what I used to, you know, 15 years ago, which was, oh, well, when your period comes back or your testosterone levels come up, we're done. We now find that that usually like their cognitions resolve often at a higher weight than when that comes back. So we are looking to sort of, you know, so, so we, define that. And so we basically go from their growth curves and we will look at their, we will work hard to get their growth curves, whether they are a young adult or a young child, and then get them back to where they used to be. And we'll, there's a range of where they used to be usually. And if they need to be at the lower end of the range, or if they truly are fully back five or 10 pounds less than we thought they were, that's fine. But but we're ready to go flat back to where they used to be from a percentile standpoint, which would be a higher weight than they used to be because we're dealing with kids right. and they're always okay. Tired. You, yeah, okay. Dr. Voss is like, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> I want to, I want to go back to the, I think what you, yeah. something you said was so important and I want to wrap my brain around it a little bit. You had talked about how recovery is both a physical and a mental state. And so often the physical part comes first, the mental health part comes, takes a lot longer. Mm -hmm. So was I correct in hearing you that 
if we have an estimated weight goal, maybe we don't have previous growth curves or something. We're kind of really trying to, it's more of an estimation than, than Mm -hmm. we would like. And they look okay physically, but they're still in those really rigid anorexic type thoughts and patterns Mm -hmm. and cannot let go of that. That would support that they need additional weight gain to get their brain restored. Yes. That is amazing. And it's huge. Yeah, it is. Well, if you look, I mean, Erin Accurso published something where she looked at parents' thoughts on all of this. I don't know if you guys have seen that. And it was a great study. And and really, parents were very clear that often kids need to weigh, you know, more than than what anyone was predicting in order to come back to themselves. And, and I think a lot of this we have learned from the parents that we partner with in all this and from the patients themselves. Like they themselves will acknowledge, I mean, when they initially hear their goal weight earlier on, it seems inconceivable to them. They think we're bananas. That's if they hear their goal weight. I mean, sometimes we don't talk about goal weight. It depends on the kid's experience with weight-related trauma. But I, but you, at some point, we're usually talking about what their goal weight is because we're not meaning to keep it a secret from them. We're just meaning to talk to them about it when they want to, when they're ready. But I think, you know, initially they're just like, that's bananas. That's totally insane. I can never wear that, weigh that. I will look horrible. Everything will be horrible. And their parents are often caught up in that anxiety too, which is understandable. But then when they actually get there, usually we hear repeatedly, wow, you know, this feels good. This looks okay. I, I, and again, I'm not invested in how people look, but they, they generally feel themselves that they look okay and they feel proud of how they look and a lot of body image distortions improve. And I know that's hard for parents and providers to wrap their brain around because the fear is that if you push someone's weight, they're going to get worse in those domains. But that is not what our data show. That is so interesting because usually in that position, we would really push on therapy. Like, okay, maybe we need to get in once every week. Do we need to increase? What can we do to make you feel more comfortable in your own body? But you are saying that it's more so if they just gained an additional five, 10 pounds. Yeah. Huh. I am. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like that happens and the the sky, you know, is blue and the seas part and everything is gone. But but the rigidity with which someone is clinging to their to their eating disorder that and and I think we all, if you're in the field, you know that feeling. Like, so it's not that everything's perfect, but it's that you just you, you know, that feeling of that the pie chart of their brain is still so full of the eating disorder that they can't really open up any part of the pie to smell the flower, smell the roses, or focus on other things. That gives a little with weight and weight has a profound effect on the brain, you know, and, and it makes sense too. Why would you want to stop weight gain, you know, with right when someone gets their first period or the minute their testosterone goes into normal, or the minute they grow half an inch, you know, and, and by the way, with younger kids with linear growth, you have to give a body the, the weight it needs in order to get the height that it's due. It, it doesn't go the opposite direction. Like, so, so you have to grow out to grow up in puberty. That is how it happens for everyone. That's how it happens in the toddler years and in the pubertal years. Yes, so People will see themselves, you know, they will be a little rounder objectively. Again, I am not invested in those terms, but that is objective. And then they shoot up an inch. And this is what happens if you have children, you watch it happening, your kids through toddlerhood and puberty, which are the two times of highest linear growth. 
And we have to sort of introduce that to happen when someone has an eating disorder in the midst of puberty because the, the linear growth process is, is halted and arrested. And that is unnerving too, because there's a trust in that process where people are like, well, how do I know I'm going to grow taller? What do you, you know, I don't know that. But like you have to have a goal weight that assumes a catch-up height if they're due for catching up their height. I mean, so you have to know something about puberty and know whether or not they can catch up height. If someone is three years past their period, they may not be able to, but most guys can at any time. And certainly most kids before or just after their period, if they're female can as well. So I was just about to ask that is what, what markers do you use? Do you get bone ages or do you look at hormone levels to determine if there is catch up growth there? Yeah. Well, so we combine looking at, and we will look at their growth curves. First of all, we really work very hard to get people's growth curves in the beginning of care. And that's, that's hard work. So it's, it's rare that we don't end up getting access to it, but we do usually have to call their pediatrician's office and say, listen, what we're getting from your EMR is not adequate. We need your archived records. We need birth to now kind of thing. We get a hold, we find out both parents' heights. So we know what their mid-parental or genetically predicted height would be. And if they, if they are not showing any slowing of their height curve on growth curves, and they're at about the percentile you would expect them to be, then we don't consider them stunted in linear height. But if they are showing stunting in either of those ways, either their own naturalistic curve is showing an obvious stunting at a time that it shouldn't be, or their parental height is way higher and they used to be at that percentile and now they are not, you know, you know, so someone whose parents would predict that they would be at the 50th percentile for height, but now I'm seeing them in the 10th the kind of thing. Obviously, first, we have to keep our medical thinking hats on and rule out hypothyroidism and celiac and all these other things that can stunt growth, of course. But in terms of what markers we use, yes, we check estradiol and testosterone and we use Tanner stage relevant norms, you know, for what they is. So, you know, so what is normal for their stage of puberty? And then we also are dietitians know about when the times of peak linear growth are. So so our dietitians who help us come up with their goal weights based on their growth curves know that, okay, here's a mid-parental height, they're way under it. They are, they have not gotten their period yet. So there should, if they're female, there should be lots of room for growth. Or if they're male, most males grow through high school, at least, you know, if there's any question, then we will get a bone age to answer your question, but we don't get it in everyone. So if someone is really off and we can't quite figure it out, or we've started to refeed them and weight restore them, and they're really not growing in height at all, then we might get it, you know, midway through the process, but we aren't getting it on everyone all the time. We're just getting the estradiol and testosterone levels and then doing that growth curve assessment and the mid-parental height and putting it all together. We hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dr. Peebles, brought to you by our sponsor, My Clear Step. Those of you who know me know that I won't support something I don't truly believe in. And because producing a podcast is far from free, I really appreciate My Clear Step sponsoring this episode, as well as previously released episodes with Dr. Jillian Lampert, CEDRD Jessica Lauren Newby, and CEDS Dr. Shelley Barr. Spoiler alert, there's one more coming up after the medical series that you don't want to miss. So real quick, if you haven't heard of My Clear Step, they have numberless scales and are the first HIPAA-compliant solution to a blind weigh-in for our clients working to recover from their eating disorder. 
Although we had heard of these numberless scales several years ago, they became a game changer during the pandemic for so many of us, myself included. My ClearStep has seamless access to data for clinicians and a simple anxiety-free virtual experience for clients and families. My ClearStep is offering a discount to listeners of this podcast with the code Beth Harrell at myclearstep.com. Information in the show notes. Okay, since we're on hormones, I really want to ask you what your opinion is on leptin levels in adolescents with I mean, restoration. So I, I, I mean, I think clearly, you know, when leptin uh, is suppressed, they need to gain weight. And when they, when it gets back to normal, like they, they, they are metabolically normalizing, but I don't, it's, it's an expensive test that I don't think tells us any more than looking at estradiol, testosterone, or if you need to a, a teeth, total T3 level, which is a cheaper test. So I'm not convinced that it adds anything more than that in clinical practice. It is so I, I'm supportive of it in research, but I don't use it in clinical practice personally. I, I don't think there's enough data to tell me why it would help me more than the things I already use. And just out of curiosity, how do you determine what normal leptin levels are for an adolescent? Well, that's, that's exactly the problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm that's glad about that. Is that no? I mean, but that's that's exactly the problem. Is that like the norms are not robustly derived yet because there haven't been enough studies done on malnourished kids with leptin levels at the numbers that you need to know what what exactly you need for things to regroup. Okay. So yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I, I wasn't misinformed and missing a big research paper because no. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of um, kids that will come from higher levels of care are having these done and the parents will come back and ask me to continue them. And I just really struggle, like you said, because it's an expensive test and I don't really know how to interpret it, yeah. how to make anything out of it. So that's that's helpful. Thank you. Sure. I mean, there are only a few centers that do it and, and they feel very strongly about it. So I don't object to that, but I don't continue it when they come back from care. So in my notes, I highlighted weight has a profound effect on the brain and that's regardless of what weight someone started at. Well, I I think weight suppression is the the key feature here. Yeah. So, so if that's what you mean, like, so regardless, uh, weight has a profound effect on the brain. And if you are very weight suppressed, your brain is not going to work as well along with your metabolism, along with ferritin levels, along with lots of things won't work as well. Mm-hmm. The jury's still out, but I think what we're learning is that weight suppression, which is this, you know, for your listeners is the difference between someone's highest as is in pediatrics, their highest BMI percentile in their lifetime, and then their BMI percentile when they present for care, that delta, the larger it is, the more at risk they are for both health and mental health complications from their eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And again, the the literature with weight suppression is really surrounding eating disorders. So I'm not speaking of weight suppression in other instances, right? In this field, but, but so in that sense, then yes, I think, restoring someone to a place where they are much less weight suppressed or ideally not really weight suppressed at all is, is helpful for most people. Even if their landing place is the 75th or 85th percentile. Or the 95th. Or the 95th. Right. right. <gasps> and that amazing. No, I'm sarcastic, but I, I know I need to not be fearful of that. I mean, I think right. if someone has always lived at the 95th percentile and they have played sports and they have been socially integrated and their cholesterol is fine and they're they don't have obstructive sleep apnea 
then and they come from families that are larger size like then i there's just really nothing to say that that person is unhealthy objectively and so then bringing them back to the 95th percentile might be the most healthful thing you could help them do mm-hmm. um, can i ask about cholesterol because sometimes cholesterol can be elevated when someone is not eating enough right frequently it can be yes cuz the liver decides, listen, you know, I have no idea why this person's not eating fats, but we're going to manufacture some. So uh-huh. lipids of all kinds can be deranged often in an elevated range. You yeah. know, you can yeah. see elevated triglycerides, LDL, and total cholesterol. Well, we could just talk, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> really appreciate you being here. Abby has a, a kind of a wrap-up question, but take your time answering it because it's kind of a doozy, I think. Oh, oh gosh. Okay. (laughs) It it is a little bit. But taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? I wish I wish I had known what an asset parents can be when I first entered. I was trained at an age at a time I'm old. So I was trained in the 19, you know, 1990s. And that's when I entered the field. And that was still a time where we were really taught that parentectomies were necessary because these were disorders of control and that, and that kids, you know, had, were likely to have had either trauma or over traumatically inducing or over controlling parents. And so my skill base was early on that I was able to talk to teens and, and get, and, you know, able to establish rapport with them and, and, and a therapeutic relationship, not to replace the therapist, but I was, I was decent at that. And, and so my skill set went to working with them individually because that was what we were taught to do. And parents were largely kept out of the loop. And the presumption was that they, they couldn't be helpful. I don't mean that in a mean way, but that was a lot of what we were taught. And, and we were even taught things like, you know, about just similar to like, I mean, this was at a time where we thought autism was caused by moms too. And, and, and schizophrenia had recently been thought to be caused by moms. So there were a lot of crazy things that we thought back then that we now would be like, what, you know, we would never think that. Unfortunately, a lot of these things with eating disorders now, you know, have perpetuated because a lot of the people trained with me did not have the benefit. I had the benefit of working with, with a physician who you've probably heard of Jim Locke, Dr. Locke, who along with Dr. LaGrange, you know, really worked hard to develop, to, to sort of question that dogma and to say, wait, what if parents don't suck? You know, and, and they, you know, they are an asset to most pediatric disorders. We, we rely on them. Why are we excluding them here and finding ways to get them back involved? Now, of course, like not all parents, you know, want to be involved in the treatment of their kids eating disorder or, you know, and and FBT family-based treatment does not work for everyone, but the, but the revelation that, that they could be helpful was, I will acknowledge was, was something that was actually hard for me to swallow. I had many 
what I now consider embarrassing and arrogant arguments with Dr. Locke, where I would, I was a young trainee and I was just like, you're nuts. Like, you know, I mean, I didn't say that, but I gave him a lot of tood as I would, as the teens would say, like, and, and um, he was shockingly patient with me. I don't know why. And then I had to step, but, but I think I, I did have the humility to, after a year of training, a, you know, he, he wasn't my direct mentor because he did psychiatry and I was in adolescent medicine, but watching his patients in his trials and I was seeing them medically, watching them get better, whereas patients who weren't in his trials were going to residentials again and again and again. And I did have the humility to step back then and say, well, you know what? There might be something to this and I need to learn more. And then I really delved into it more and I transitioned my skill set to having to learning how to continue to be therapeutic and develop rapport with, with teens and, and youth, but also using those same skills to learn. And I wasn't a parent then, but to learn how to speak to parents and meet them where they were at too, and, and be respectful of where they were at in their experience and talk to them all in the same room while focusing on each of them, you know, differently, but, but equally. And that, that I wish I had been taught before. Cause I think that, I think that I I'm sure I did damage to some family systems by making the presumptions that I did. I think our whole field did. And I think we still do. And there are some family systems that are damaging. Don't get me wrong. I'm not denying that, but it's, it's not the norm. And we were sort of treating it as if it was. So I I wish that I had known that. I can't help reflect that you as a trainee were in this stage that was kind of a revolutionary for treatment for our field. And now here you are as a seasoned doctor, really forging the path for new revolutionary treatments on the medical side. And so it's, it's great to see that. I think that you took even if it's subconsciously that learning from how to forge new pathways and go against the grain on what people think into your career throughout and really carry that forward to help the whole community. I think that's amazing. Thank you. I think we do have to, as a field, remember our own humility though. I mean, like, I think that was the big thing. I, if I'm really honest with myself, I loved being the white knight that came in and sort Mm -hmm. of was the person that the kids could talk to. And it took some discipline for me to say, that's not actually helpful. That's not the most helpful to them. I need to step back. I need to let the therapist and the parents do this work and, and them be the person that the teen goes to over time and me be a consultant. And so that took, that took some time. And I think that it's relevant to what you said, because I think that's, that's, that's how you get to a place where, I mean, I think when we're pushing forward, we always need to learn from the people around us and, and whether they're, we have degrees or not, we need to hear people's lived experience and listen to the evidence and let that form what we do. I have to say same because I started in the early 90s also and that parentectomy made me laugh mm-hmm. and and I've done harm in, mm-hmm. in trying to remove the parent and giving the child or the teen the, not the power, but the, so that they weren't being controlled by mm-hmm. something outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have definitely learned a lot today. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. This was Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. 
If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethherrell.com professionals.